Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation with Geshe Tupton Jimpa, a Buddhist scholar and the primary English translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. This conversation took place on December 10th, 2020. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, uh, welcome to another episode of Tibet Talks. Um, I'm Venture Gerzo, uh, Director of Outreach at International Campaign for Tibet. Thank you uh, for joining us today. Uh, today uh, marks the day that His Holiness the Dalai Lama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize on December 10th, 1989. And so we wanted to focus and have a program today to reflect on His Holiness's teachings, um, his philosophy, uh, inspiration, and how he has shaped a message of peace and compassion, not only for Tibet, uh, but to f- benefit the entire world. And as our guest today, we have a Tibetan Buddhist scholar and highly acclaimed uh, thought leader who has been serving as the principal English translator to His Holiness the Dalai Lama since 1985. Uh, he's translated and collaborated on numerous books by His Holiness, including Ethics for a New Millennium, The Art of Happiness, as well as Beyond Religion, uh, uh, not to mention his own publications of uh, A Fearless Heart and more recently the biography of the great Tibetan master, uh, Tsongkhapa, who's actually, whose Paranirvana we are uh, commemorating today as well. Our guest is also founder and chairman of the Compassion Institute at Stanford University and at the Institute of Tibetan Classics. He serves as an adjunct uh, professor at the Faculty of Religious Studies at McGill University, Montreal. And he's been a core member of the Mind and Life Institute and it's, uh, and the chairman of its board since uh, January of 2012. So we have a very special learned guest today and I would like you all to join me in welcoming uh, Gishitu Tenjimbala to our show. Hello, Tenjimbala. Thank you so much for your warm words of welcome and introduction. Thank you. And it's a real joy and privilege to be part of this Tibet Talk series and particularly remembering this beautiful day some 31 years ago in December um, when His Holiness received the Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you. No, we're really grateful for you to making the time to join us. I know uh, you how busy you keep, um, and it's special for us to have you here. Uh, so to begin, uh, to the Jimla, I was thinking of first sharing a short clip to, to take us um, back uh, to that uh, day and um, begin. Today, the 10th of December, you shall be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And I think it is a matter of significance that this day also is the birthday of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Could anything be more appropriate than to celebrate this day by giving the Peace Prize to you, to a man now recognized all over the world as one of the most prominent spokesmen for the human rights as the very foundation for a true, just, and lasting peace. And accordingly, I now call upon your holiness. The 14th Dalai Lama, will you please enter the podium and receive the Nobel Peace Prize for 1989 with a gold medal and the diploma. Oh. I get a lump in my throat every time I uh, watch that. It was a very, very special occasion. And um, you were there. You were part of His Holiness's entourage in Oslo 
Can you share with us some recollections from that time? What was it like for His Holiness? I don't know. It's difficult to say what it was like for His Holiness because His Holiness, um, um, you know, in his opening remarks, he really uh, showed his true color when he, which is really humility. He said, "I, you know, I received this award uh, on behalf of all the people who are bringing compassion into the world." Um, so, he, in a sense, he really took it as not an award to him as a person, but basically for an ideal and a service that he has been championing. And that I thought was very telling of who he is. Um, but from my own personal experience, I mean, I remember, you know, I was early 30, I was 31 actually, exactly, and um, almost exactly. And I had um, that autumn, I had joined Cambridge University. So I was joining His Holiness for Oslo from Cambridge. I was still a monk. And, um, and it was like magical. I mean, it was like, um, um, and it was just so, um, the, 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 the words that come to my mind are celebration, joy, and a sense of community. And the one reason why I say sense of community is because there were so many both Tibetan members as well as many of the international friends who have spent decades supporting His Holiness, supporting the Tibetan cause. And this was a moment, a rare moment for everyone to get together. So I think for me, it's really these Celebration, joy, and sense of community was really this. It was it was really palpable, and in that room on that day when His Holiness walked on the stage, it was just beautiful. I mean, but the, you know, I I have a slightly kind of centric um, side to me, and that you know, one of the things that I immediately noticed is that kind of the resemblance of the color of His Holiness and the choir who was <laughs> standing behind. It was a magical, it was really, truly magical, yeah. Yes, no, what you said about uh, feeling sense of community, uh, that's so true because that feeling, it just wasn't in that room. It spread out to the Tibetan community in the diaspora, to the Tibetans in Tibet, because I have uh, one of my uh, colleagues who passed away, he was uh, teaching at the Tibet University in uh, Beijing then. And he said he heard it uh, in the news because um, uh, he wanted, he said he felt like showing some kind of reaction. And his reaction uh, was to wear his Tibetan dress. And he went to teach that day in Tibetan dress thinking, oh, I, you know, feeling proud and wearing the Tibetan dress. And he entered his classroom and he said all his two Tibetan students also showed up in their Tibetan <laughs> dress, in their Tibetan outfit. So, it really, I think, the sense, that sense yeah. of, um, you know, as you were saying, spread across. And to back uh, to our conversation, I want to also now, um, you have been in close proximity with His Holiness for so many years, from 85, traveling with him everywhere to so many events. Um, I want to ask you if you could summarize His Holiness's key messages why do you think his holiness resonates with the public the way you know the public resonates the way uh, they do for him? I think one of the remarkable things about his holiness is that um, uh, even though on uh, ostensibly wearing a monk, monk's robe, he's clearly Tibetan and he's the embodiment of the Tibetan nations and people's aspirations. So there is that in his public persona. But one thing that is amazing about his holiness, and I noticed that very very early when I first began serving him was that how much of his day was really spent on thinking about the world, humanity. And this is reflected in his itinerary when he's traveling around. If you were to look at his itinerary, especially when in the early days when I joined him, his schedules were really packed. I mean, every 10 minutes is kind of accounted for. And if you look at the itinerary, you can see 80, 90 percent has really nothing to do with Buddhism and Tibet. It's really about the world, whether it is, you know, giving a, a talk at a university or a peace event or advocation, advocacy of compassion and a huge public talk. So I think one of the things that His Holiness has been remarkably effective is in really conveying to the broader humanity uh, a kind of a, an appreciation of our shared human condition. Because 
many of people in in modern world are so caught up in their own identity of who they are members of a particular nation particular tribe particular language community particular religious community and there were very few figures like his holiness who really has this power to remind them first and foremost of their their humanity and his holiness is you know one of his magic is that he has the ability to dig deep into his own very rich Buddhist psychological resources, because that's how he was trained, but the ability to articulate in very simple human terms. And this is what makes, because he has this wealth that he can draw from, but when it comes out and when it's presented to the general public, it comes out in a very practical insight that people can immediately relate to. So when they interact with this holiness, I remember, you know, often, I mean, there is this beautiful statement that Archbishop Desmond Tutu once made when he was introducing his holiness at a major public talk in Vancouver in Canada. Archbishop said that the remarkable thing about his holiness and that the reason why millions flock to listen to him is because by listening to his holiness, by being in his presence, he makes us feel proud because he is one of us. He's another human being. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that his holiness has this ability to remind people what is beautiful, what is the better angel that each of us has in ourselves. And also one of the you know, amazing messages that has brought to the world is the simple message that the, the, one of the important source, sources for our own personal happiness lies inside us. The over-reliance on material external conditions is not a good recipe for happiness, even from your own personal point of view. So he is reminding us as individuals the tremendous resources that we ourselves have. Also, in some sense, empowering each one of us so that we can take charge of our own mental well-being. And also because he's reminding us to connect with our own natural compassion, you know, he is offering a way to live from that place. From the better part of ourselves. I think these are what makes his holiness's message, message so compelling. And another thing is his simple presence. You know, I mean, it's so powerful that he's so genuine. You know, what you see is what you get, basically. And the, and the power of that authenticity and his compassion shining through as his natural, you know, even body, you know, uh, movement and, you know, uh, expression really shows our compassion. And that makes a lot of people, you know, feel comfortable, comforting, because, and inspired because they feel that if they're trying, they can also get closer to that kind of living. So I think these are the reasons why I think he has been very, very important voice for a huge amount of people. I mean, in, in a sense, he represents human conscience and also he represents highest human aspirations for how to, how to live. Yeah, no, Jibla, you put it so eloquently. And I think that's also why so many people sometimes who are even, you know, who you see as very rigid and very, they come in front of his oldness and they just collapse with like the full sentiment exactly. of just how you feel when you're in exactly. his presence. So, yeah, exactly. Yep, and we feel very lucky um, that we're in this time where we can hear him and uh, get his teachings. Um, now focusing on Tibet, it's been, the, his oldness is the lifeline for the people of Tibet. And it's been 60 years since his oldness left, uh, Lhasa and to, uh, start a life in exile in India. And now, you know, for, for Tibetans, we, inside Tibet, we have a whole generation of Tibetans who haven't seen yes. him or heard him directly. So, what do you think his holiness still means for uh, Tibetans inside Tibet? I think in a, in a nutshell, um, his holiness is the embodiment of Tibetan nation, Tibetan people. Um, and I use the word nation carefully. I know that his holiness has been a huge advocate or middle way approach to solution. And I make a distinction between country and nation. Um, you know, his holiness is advocating an approach for the Tibetan movement where we can envision Tibet being part of the broader People's Republic of China, uh, one country, but within that, 
you know, Tibet could be a nation. For example, like in the, in the United Kingdom, Scotland and Wales are nations. They are not countries, they are nations. And where I live in Quebec, you know, which is in Canada, the Quebecers also have aspirations for nationhood. So I think this distinction between nation and country is important. And for nation tends to be have a longer history. Countries are more political, you know, uh, polit politically evolved uh, structures. Nations have longer history with a particular uh, language and culture and so on. And for the Tibetan people and Tibetan nation, you know, His Holiness is the embodiment. He is this very one thing, one symbol that will be able to evoke everything that is about Tibetan nation and Tibetan aspiration and Tibetan people. So um, I think inside Tibet, you know, his holiness is the source of inspiration is still, I mean, even though you're right, there, there have been, you know, generations of Tibetans who have grown up without having any opportunity or privilege to have physical interaction with him. But I think he still remains a powerful force. And for, I would say for probably, if not 100%, 99.9% of Tibetans inside Tibet, His Holiness still remains the bedrock upon which they rely on their identity, of their identity. He's like the anchor, you know, uh, even though individually, you know, you may have to interact in a particular way, but emotionally and spiritually, uh, he's the anchor. And, uh, and that cannot be changed. I mean, that, it doesn't really matter how, how much power Chinese authorities, communist Chinese authorities may use to suppress them. I think that reality, that fact, just simply could not be erased because, you know, he is that symbol. He is that, you know, embodiment. The more they try to repress, and uh, the stronger that feeling uh, yeah. gets. Yeah. You know? And in fact, if they're smart, they would actually, you know, seize on that opportunity and to really look for a meaningful accommodation which will keep the Tibetans happy and also resolve this ongoing question about, you know, but the fact that the Tibetans inside Tibet still challenge and question the legitimacy of communist China's rule in Tibet means the modern China, the communist Chinese nationhood is not fully complete. You know, I mean, that's, that's from a kind of a, even from a political, historical point of view, uh, it's as if this big landmass and the people in that roof of the world haven't signed on to this, you know, unification pact, if you want to call it that way. So, you know, if, if the authorities are smart, they would seize this opportunity where His Holiness is advocating not only a peaceful approach, nonviolent approach for which he received the Nobel Peace Prize, but he's also really kind of uh, encouraging the Tibetans to be more pragmatic, to be more practical, and find a way to accommodate and be part of this big, great nation of PRC. And, you know, clearly they are smart enough, they will seize this opportunity and, you know, find a way to make the Tibetans, you know, accept being part of this great nation. No, absolutely right. His Holiness inspires this uh, peaceful, non-violent approach because Tibetan, many, many listeners might not know, but uh, history hasn't all been peaceful. We, we have been a warrior uh, nation also. So, For example, there is, a, you know, very few people know that there is um, a Buddhist text uh, called the Prophecy of Khotan, which is in Central Asia, um, in Xinjiang area. And it's about uh, Khotan, which was a Buddhist kingdom. And it turns out in the 6th, 7th century, um, there were a lot of Tibetan imperial army invading and, you know, fighting in the Central Asia. Their, you know, archaeological um, findings reveal that. And the Khotan, the prophecy of Khotan is actually talking about prophecy of these, you know, red-faced barbarians coming from the north, <laughs> coming from the east. And, and attacking and looting the temples. It turns out they were Tibetans. <laughs> there was a Tibetan imperial army. <laughs> so we were not yes, peaceful. We, yes, we read, uh, I think, yeah, isn't that, that a term that uh, we call ourselves also, the red-faced uh, nation. <laughs> now I'm going to talk also about um, 
environment, climate change, you know, those are things His Holiness always uh, uh, values deeply. Our, um, I know Speaker Pelosi always credits His Holiness uh, for being the first Nobel laureate to talk about uh, environment and climate change. And um, but when he when his holiness speaks about it, he speaks about it. He frames it. He says through a Buddhist lens, and he what he speaks about what he calls a sense of universal responsibility. Uh, can you explain that for us? I mean, Speaker Pelosi is right. Actually, his holiness was the first Nobel uh, Peace uh, Award recipient whose citation, official citation, um, referred to his contribution to environmental conscious um, awareness. So. Speaker Pelosi is right. Um, I think the, the the key concept is holiness is using from Buddhism on understanding environment um, is really this concept of interdependence. Because in the West, for a long time, um, the concept of causation has been much more linear. And so um, cause and effect was seen more in linear terms, and there was very little appreciation or even conceptual apparatus to understand more complex causation. And climate is one phenomenon. And this is one of the reasons why weather forecasts are never exact science, you know, <laughs> they can forecast rain, but there is no rain turning up. So, you know, the climate and the weather system is one area where complex causation really comes into the picture. And particularly when it comes to uh, environmental you know, effects, um, we really need to dig deeper into our appreciation of the complexity of causes and efficient. And this is one thing that His Holiness is bringing up. And one of the very early concepts he brought to the world is what he calls global responsibility or universal responsibility. And the idea behind this is a simple one, which is to really appreciate the impact that our own individual behavior will have, not just on our immediate environment, but people beyond. And initially, he was using this concept more from the point of view of economy and others, but increasingly, that concept seems to be way more relevant to understanding the current problem of climate change and environment. So I think the individual responsibility, global responsibility, is the understanding that, you know, we need to move beyond our egocentric individualist perspective and to really appreciate that just as we have rights, we also have responsibility. And our responsibility is to be aware of the impact our behavior will have on others, and particularly on environment. So the global responsibility, the Tibetan word chisem, you know, is to really kind of, you know, call upon us that we are not, you know, a single individual living our life alone, unconnected to the rest of the so since we are social creatures, our happiness and our suffering is all intertwined with the interest of everybody around us, including the, 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 the planet that we live on. So just as we wish ourselves to be happy, and we also have a responsibility to make sure that the planet that we are living on and the people around us are also, you know, you know flourishes. So I think this is where the universal responsibility is a powerful concept because it gives us a moral language. Because one of the problems of um, sort of uh, modern Western approach to issues like environment is that our resources for moral language becomes quite impoverished because we are reduced to using concepts like individual freedom and choice and avoidance of harm, whereas when we bring concepts like interdependence and global responsibility, it really enriches the whole vocabulary and thinking resources around this so that we can bring a much more robust language around moral responsibility. Because in the end, it's about our responsibility, moral responsibility to others and the world we live in. So I think His Holiness's concept of universal responsibility is something that he promoted you know, as early as the 70s. Uh, is really relevant today. The concepts that His Holiness speaks about, uh, he hasn't changed from what he's been speaking in the 70s um, till today. I go back and I listen to talks that His Holiness has done in the 70s, 80s, and 
the message has always been there. Very, yeah, very constant. I mean, one yes. of the difference is today uh, we have a lot more uh, contemporary resources. For example, like the concept of the interdependence and global responsibility is deeply enriched by uh, new thinking in the systems uh, thinking, uh, systemic changes. And systems thinking is what really kind of allows us to bring a lot more um, sophistication in the thinking of the complex causation. So there's a lot more resources. And also, we are now beginning to understand um, some of the more complex mechanisms um, in the climate science field where, you know, after a certain level of increase in the temperature, there is an exponential, you know, increase. And where is that exponential increase coming from? Because there's having a kind of a knock-on effect from one to the another. So there again, I think, so we have, you know, although His Holiness has been one of the very, very early global leaders who have brought this sense of responsible, global responsibility and interdependence and complex causation into the discourse, now we get a lot more robust, you know, kind of uh, details on unpacking these and making these ideas kind of real. My final question before we uh, look for online uh, questions is, um, I get, I've been able to attend several audiences of His Holiness with ICT members and Tibet supporters. And when I, whenever we do, uh, His Holiness always expresses gratitude for their support for Tibet, Tibetan culture, um, to each and every person uh, meeting him. And he reminds us that Tibetan culture is worth saving and it has a lot to contribute to the world. So, and uh, I know you've done a lot of work also uh, on, on this aspect. So could you uh, expand on that? And uh... Yeah, I think it's, you know, um, it would be a real tragedy that as a nation and Tibetan as a people and Tibetan culture were to become victim of 20th century and become, remain only in history. That is, that would be a truly great tragedy for entire humanity. And I'm not saying this because I happen to be Tibetan, uh, you know, thinking more from my own Tibetan perspective, but I truly believe because, for example, you know, ever since Buddhism became more established in Tibet, Tibet as a nation and Tibetan as a people have really en engaged in an amazing experiment of what it means to really create a structure in society where we live compassion on a daily basis. You know, for example, if you look at, um, you know, I remember, um, and, and I don't want to sort of <laughs> sidetrack, but, you know, for example, children learn to come to six syllable Omani Padme Hom. Now, Omani Padme Mantra is the mantra of compassion, full of compassion. Um, our heroes are the Dalai Lamas, who are embodiments of compassion. So on a cultural level, it has really made an effort to make compassion very explicit. And secondly, you know, for whatever reason, Tibetans happen to be the natural custodian of the Nalanda's great heritage. And the Nalanda heritage represents one of the greatest, you know, achievement in human spiritual thinking, philosophical thinking. Tibetans have found a way to really maintain that robust tradition where reason, faith, and meditative experience and mysticism, mystical experience, they all are integrated without conflict. Uh, and there is a way in which the uh, kind of a conception of human nature and the aspiration of the human potential is articulated in a way that is really powerful. And on top of that, you know, because of the Nalanda heritage, the Tibetan, Tibetan tradition has been able to develop what some of my colleagues call mental technology. In other words, meditation techniques that really aim at, you know, cultivating and training our attention, um, emotion regulation, um, greater awareness, and also compassion and loving kindness. You know, there are huge amount of meditation technology or techniques and there, now we are beginning to see the effects, for example, like mindfulness is everywhere in the clinical setting, in the leadership training, in workplace, in, you know, in human resources, increasingly compassion training. Now, I had the privilege to develop one of those programs, you know, inspired by His Holiness. So increasingly, we can see compassion training and loving kindness 
coming to these various public sectors. And I think, you know, these, so these are just, you know, tip of the iceberg. The Tibetan culture has this tremendous resources that as it, you know, I mean, I would argue that one of the beautiful things about the 20th century has been the, the sort of encounter between classical Tibetan culture and modern society and modern knowledge. And what we are seeing is this beautiful offering that is coming to the world, which not in the form of any religious approach, but in the form that is more universally applicable. So I think His Holiness is right when he says that protection of Tibetan culture is not only for the interest of the Tibetan people, but it's, it's the interest of the entire humanity. And he's right because there is a tremendous resource, particularly spiritual and philosophical knowledge resource that is embedded in the Tibetan culture and Tibetan tradition. And, 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 and in order to protect this, in order to uh, you know, have the time, the space to delve into it and explore it and so that we can create offerings to the world, we need to protect Tibetan people. We need to protect the Tibetan nation because which is the nation and the people are the container for this culture. And you cannot simply you know, make a list and say, okay, these are the Tibetan cultural essences and we take care of this and then nation and people, we can ignore them. That, that it doesn't work like this. <laughs> I think so, so the, you know, all the Tibetan supporters, you know, it's, it's his holiness is often explicitly says, you know, I don't see the supporters of Tibetan cause as pro-Tibet or anti-Chinese. They are pro-justice. They are, you know, they are, they really want to protect uh, a unique nation, a unique people with its culture. So I think, you know, I hope that more and more people will, you know, appreciate this, you know, very simple idea that the protection of the Tibetan nation and Tibetan people and the culture is really uh, for the best interest of entire humanity. I mean, I would, you know, I may be a little outrageous, but I would say actually saving Tibet and Tibetan people and culture is really a matter of saving the soul of humanity. Thank you. And I think uh, our organization uh, is an example of having people who care and who've heard this message of his holiness and uh, who are here to support Tibet and Tibetan culture. Now I'm going to see if uh, we have some online questions. Otherwise, I'll continue. Um, we have uh, similar to the line we've been in conversation, we have an uh, online viewer, Shempen uh, Kimsar, and he's saying, what do you think uh, would have happened to Tibet and Tibetans if His Holiness didn't exist? Would Tibetans, Tibet and Tibet be extinct? He says, with all due respect, my love and reverence for His Holiness, do you think His Holiness has become bigger than Tibet? <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the latter part of the question is, yes, His Holiness is way bigger. And if you look at, for example, like um, many of the books that I've served in, the Ethics for a New Millennium, Beyond Religion, uh, to, Towards True Kingship of Faiths, Universe in a Single Atom, all of these um, um, kind of, you know, aspects of His Holiness's contribution and life and work, um, which is way beyond Tibet. It's really about humanity. And His Holiness really cares for the soul of humanity, because in the end, you know, what it means for us humans to be a species. And His Holiness' central argument has been, if we don't embrace fundamental part of our, our species will not survive. And, and so yes, he's way bigger than. In fact, those of us who truly care for His Holiness's legacy, I know personally that His Holiness as a monk, he doesn't like to think in terms of legacy, but, you know, but those of us who care about his legacy, we need to appreciate that he is way bigger than Tibet. On the, the first part of the question, um, it's very difficult to imagine or envision that the struggle of the 20th century without there being his holiness. Because, you know, our struggle is quite old, 60-something. If I ever get senile and, you know, forget how old I am, I just need to ask, how old is the Tibetan exile life? I was born in in November 1958, so I'm 62, and we are we've been outside 62. So our cause is quite old one in in the 
you know, sort of, you know, broad scheme of things. Uh, and there are many peoples and nations struggling everywhere in parts of the world. But we have, our cause has been one of the struggle has been one of the most enduring, despite the fact that the, 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 the force against which we are struggling is one of the you know, greatest powers on this earth, but still there is a resilience in our cause and this and struggle. And this resilience really has to do with organism. The fact that he is the embodiment, the fact that in one person, the entire aspiration of the Tibetan people can be expressed. And that's what makes our cause the struggle very enduring and bound together. Yeah. Um, so another question here from a uh, online Facebook uh, participant, uh, Randall Neustadler, and uh, he asks, can you talk about the vitality and continued viability of the Tibetan language in the public and in the monastic <laughs> scholastic, uh, scholarly arenas? So that's a very good question, actually. This is one area, I don't know, maybe this person already knows that I've done something in this yeah. domain. Um, I, I worry. Um, I think Tibetan as a spoken language, I don't worry. Uh, because even in exile community, we are, you know, over 150,000 people. Um, the community of Tibetan speakers in exile is large enough uh, not to worry that the language might die. But where I do worry is the written language. and the, our Tibetan writing system, particularly conceptual thematization of our grammar, um, needs to be modified, modernized. And um, you know, I in fact wrote a modern Tibetan grammar in Tibetan uh, and put it out there in 2010 as a way of generating debate and discussion. Uh, and it was not finalized, but I just wanted to put it out there. And there has been a lot of pushback, um, and, and it's very understandable because when a culture is in exile, a culture is struggling to survive, um, its instincts tend to be very conservative. Uh, it tends to kind of want to heck cling on and not change. Uh, but for when it comes to language and vitality, uh, we really need to find a way to modernize it. Because, and also if we don't modernize it, we won't be able to uh, take advantage this tremendous medium that we have today through, you know, social media platforms, the ability, the Unicode system that, you know, allows Tibetans to have Tibetan phones on any devices. So there's a huge opportunity, but somehow the writing system, particularly the syntactic structure, and for example, we don't even have a clear marker for end of a sentence. That can't be right. <laughs> that needs to be changed. So I, I worry. I, I worry about the long-term sustainability of the writing system. Thank you for the question. Uh, another question from uh, Lotus Romeu. She says, what can citizens of other countries do best to help preserve and keep Tibetan culture alive? That's a good question. Um, I think it matters a lot for Tibetans, not just in exile community, but also uh, inside Tibet, that there are every now and then there are international members of the international community showing their concern and support. I think that really matters a lot. Um, and some, you know, skeptics might say, "Well, it's not going to make any difference. China is so powerful. You know, why bother?" That's not true. It really matters because people, especially people inside Tibet. They really need to feel that they are not alone. They are, you know, I mean, that was one of the things that in 2008, one of the things that was deeply, deeply was how international and how diverse were the people that were coming out openly, expressing their support for the Tibetan cause, expressing their concern. And this has been a huge source of encouragement and inspiration for inside Tibet. And I think. On the cultural front, um, I think if we international community can continue to encourage Tibetans and make them feel that they are not alone, they are not a forgotten people, and theirs is not a, ours is not a forgotten cause, then the actual motivation to continue to you know, save and 
revitalized culture will be taken effectively, you know, work will be done by the Tibetans themselves. And then increasingly, you know, with his holiness's writings, you know, uh, for example, like he has recently released the second volume of <clears throat> science and philosophy, the Indian Buddhist classics, all of which are drawn from the Tibetan collection of Hindu, there will be outlets through which increasingly the, the kind of the insights of the Tibetan tradition could be shared more widely with the world. With that, um, there's another question. It sounds a bit complex, but maybe you can simplify it for us. <laughs> it says, uh, what is His Holiness's view on the relationship between dependent origination and mental development? Oh, that's a good one, actually. I think one of the powerful benefits of taking the dependent origination seriously, the dependent origination is another word for interdependence, really appreciating the complexity of the causal relationship among many different factors. One of the powerful benefits of taking dependent origination concept more seriously is to um, have a less clinging, less grasping onto your ideas because we get so fixated on the rightness of what we believe and we to the point where we're not willing to even entertain the possibility of an alternative point of view. So dependent origination, which is also the other side of emptiness, is a reminder to us that the reality that we perceive is actually just that, our perception. And the actual reality itself can never be fully captured. And someone who takes reality seriously needs to really make sure that at least some attention is paid to the complexity of the reality in, you know, that we experience. And if we do that, for example, like, um, you know, when you look at, I mean, one of the immediate places where it affects is the way in which your emotional life manifests. Many of the emotions that we experience are very reactive, and particularly anger and judgment. And when we, when we experience anger and judgment, we tend to latch on to a particular fixated image of what the situation is according to our interpretation. And we blame everything to that one single thing, you know, grab onto it, and then start attacking it. What the dependent origination concept does is to loosen say that also ask the question to turn the lens back on yourself you may be partly responsible for contributing to that situation there is the other side too but there may be for example if someone is acting in a strange way you know often it's not sure whether the person is doing it because of you or because the person had a bad morning a fight with a spouse or something that happened at home and is taking it out on you. We don't know. So the dependent origination concept really helps us be more, um, of, you know, observant and bring more awareness into the situation. So that's one very immediate benefit. So, and there the mental development is very closely. The more you are able to bring appreciation of dependent origination, the more aware you become. The more aware you become, then you see that out because we tend to rush to judgment and when we rush to judgment we bring all our habitual pattern and put an image onto the reality and we confuse that image to the actual reality and then we build our entire reaction and action based on this image so dependent origination if we take it seriously it really has that effect of making us a bit more liberate a bit more enlightened thank you um on that same note uh we have a question from tashi sherpa who says, uh, can there be compassion without suffering? That's a good question. Uh, I, I don't think so. Yeah, because compassion by definition is a response in the face of a suffering. And in fact, what makes us human beings so naturally capable of having empathy for someone even we don't know is because our fundamental sentient nature is our ability to experience suffering and you know so without that capacity for suffering experience of pain i don't think there will be capacity for empathy and without empathy there's no route to um so now of course when you are highly evolved um, like a fully enlightened buddha then probably you yourself don't have to suffer because your wisdom insight into someone's suffering is so powerful. Um, so I think for most of us, for us 
mortals, I think without suffering, I don't think there is a route to compassion. It makes me remember a um, uh, Tibetan monk I met in the mountains of Colorado, uh, in the middle of nowhere, and he had moved there from Hawaii. And he said, <laughs> why don't you move to such a cold place? <laughs> from such a beautiful place. And he said, no, Hawaii is too comfortable. <laughs> serious practice. And I more serious practice here in the yeah. mountains. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Now I have a question for you from uh, Jane Robinette. Mm -hmm. And this is to do, I think, uh, with what your comments on uh, Tibetan uh, writing. Uh, she says, what role do Tibetan writers have in expanding, preserving the language? So we may have Tibetan writers listening today, so. Uh, I think the Tibetan writers, um, you know, my appeal to, you know, my own writing is really primarily in the classical text field. That's my area of expertise. And also there is so much work that needs to be done in that field. And um, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm reformatting many of the key texts by introducing modern conven conventions of paragraph break comprehensive subject headings and so on and so forth. But for a broader Tibetan writing writer community, my appeal to you would be to really strive hard to write in a way where accessibility is really crucial, that you can bring the reader directly to what you're writing. And as much as possible, try to bridge the gap between the spoken Tibetan and the written Tibetan. Um, and so that you know, we don't have, because otherwise we will end up in a situation where I remember, for example, I know, for example, in Bhutan, um, they teach uh, a spoken language and they teach something called Cherke, Dharma language, which is the written. Um, as much as possible, if we Tibetans can find a way to do the writing in such a way that our children don't have to learn two different languages, you know, it's like a bit like in the old days, you know, you have the, you know, mother tongue and then you have Latin if you want to be a writer or, you know, uh, trained in, in literature. I think this is one area I think the contemporary Tibetan writers can really make a huge, is the more they're able to bridge the written and the spoken and the more they're able to write it in very straightforward, plain, you know, you say things like plain English, like plain Tibetan. Uh, and and the more they can really grab the reader uh, and bring that joy, because the, one of the things that makes literature great is literature has the ability to take you through a completely different experience. You know, literature is one of the most powerful vehicles for empathy or, you know, imagining situations. So I think that the writers can really help open up uh, the Tibetan language, make it way more accessible and immediate and including, you know, playing with length of sentences. And I would encourage the writers to be brave to introduce full stops, you know, full stops, quotation mark, question mark. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, adopting conventions that actually are helpful so that the reading public can immediately know where the sentence ends and, and, and so sort of have a more direct experience. I hope so also. I... I read Tibetan, I went to a Tibetan school, Tibetan Children's Village. I graduated uh, in my Tibetan studies. Uh, but I have trouble when I read because I speak <laughs> Tibetan and I read Tibetan, but the reading text, many of the texts, I can't understand what I'm reading. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so, you say it's very true. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of uh, questions uh, coming in. Uh, one question also from another question from Lil Shempen here, uh, from question from Losan Gatso. Is it conceivable that the Dalai Lama can influence the Chinese people to become more empathetic and compassionate and more open to ideas of freedom and democracy? This is something his oldness hears. I, I think so, but unfortunately, you know, it's very difficult to have access to his oldness's writings and teachings uh, for many Chinese. Um, and this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy. And, and, you know, I'm being honest and frank here because in the long run, it's a loss for the Chinese people. Because China is a great nation, one of the most ancient nations on this earth. In terms of population, it's the largest nation on earth. So over a billion 
something human beings there. And uh, so the fate of this long-term fate and flourishing of this nation uh, is a matter that is very important to the entire world. And, you know, having the access to His Holiness's teachings, His Holiness's, you know, visions, and His Holiness's sort of, you know, call for connecting with broader humanity, you know, would be a saving grace for this great nation. Um, because one of the tragedy of the communist era has been basically a loss of faith in anything that was part of the cultural classical heritage. So, uh, you know, a lot of Chinese, particularly the educated Chinese and thinkers, are worried about what they call moral vacuum in China, in modern China, which has been filled with greed and materialism and consumerism. Um, and it's a real tragedy that the ordinary Chinese just don't have as to him. That, that's a real tragedy. And his oldness also says that China being uh, historically from a Buddhist nation, they would have yeah. affinity to Buddhism. Yeah. So that would be, uh, yes, you're right, it's a, a tragedy. So next question I have from Shempen. I might do two more questions. So we're, okay. we're running out of almost time also. And it says, along with the Nalanda tradition, has the indigenous culture of Tibetan Lun contributed to Tibetan culture? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I think that, the, you know, if you look at many of the Tibetan cultural practice of respecting the environment, you know, even, for example, like um, the Tibetan prayer flags, which the five colors symbolize the five elements. Um, and also the Lundar, you know, where we put flags with the wind wavering. Um, there is all of this, you know, indicates uh, a culture that is very sensitive and in tune with the natural environment. All of these are coming from Bon. You know, the prayer flags really originated from the Bon tradition. And many of the purification rituals, although there are now Buddhist versions of it, um, actually originally a lot of those rituals are really from the traditional Bon um, tradition. So I think the Bon uh, initially, of course, you know, when Buddhism was coming from India, the indigenous Bon culture was, tradition was facing threat, and there was a competition for, you know, patronage and all of this. So that is very human. I mean, that, I don't think that kind of tension can be avoided in any place when new foreign ideas come. But over time, Bon and Buddhism really kind of coexisted and they influence each other. You know, many of the deeper philosophical ideas in Bon came, you know, got adapted from Buddhism. You know, the Buddhist tradition also adopted many of the rituals, environmental and purification practices, all of this. So I think they are really symbiotic. And I don't think you can, you know, I for one, I do not believe that we can think of Tibetan culture purely in terms of Buddhism. If you take Bon out and then to explain origin and the nature of Tibetan culture purely in Buddhist terms that comes from India. I don't think it's doable. So, and Bon heritage is an integral part of Tibetan culture and identity. Thank you for that explanation. Now I might do one last question, which is, I think you're a parent also. So this is a question from uh, Dorbe Lugia. Dorji says, uh, how Western immigrated Tibetans can educate uh, Tibetan language and culture to their own kids? That's a good one. Um, I think for children, it's very important to have um, examples. So I think at home, having you know photograph of his holiness, conquers of the Buddha and Tsongkhapa and Sambhava. And every now and then, I mean, and also making sure that you um, mark the important events like the, the New Year. Today, for example, is Gante Namju, so Tongkapa's Parinirvana Day, and uh, Buddha's, you know, Enlightenment Day. I think it's important to make fuss about these things. You know, I mean, my own two girls, um, um, then my wife is not Tibetan, but my own two girls, because we celebrated Tibetan New Year very early, you know, when they were small and they got money, you know, on Tibetan New Year. They would they remember it really well because they were getting 
money as cash as gifts. So I think as parents, we need to make something that is concrete in children's mind. And then they will integrate that as part of their identity, that is part of who they are. And that's one of the reasons why Judaism has been so resilient, even in 2000 years of exile, because they had rituals, passages of rites of passage. And this ritual, I think that, that is really important. And then on the Tibetan language front, that's a bit more challenging. I think as much as possible, if you know both parents are Tibetan speaking uh, parents, then I think at home, uh, as much as possible, we should try to speak Tibetan, and then the children will get it. Um, on the culture front, these days now, there are a lot of books available in English. You know, it, it's very difficult to understand classical Tibetan, then there's no excuse not to read the English translations of many texts. So I think just being uh, creative, and then if you happen to be living in a community where there are, you know, these days, uh, Tibetan association, uh, you know, halls, and they have Sunday classes, I think as much as possible, making sure that your children go to them and uh, participate in that kind of cultural life. Those are the ways in which we can um, really kind of make the culture come to life. And the, the one of the most important things that His Holiness reminds us is that it is not enough to simply say, we need to preserve our, our culture because our, it's our heritage. He says it is important to show to the children that the cultural values and knowledge is actually beneficial and relevant to our everyday contemporary life. You need, for example, whether it has to do with dealing with stress, whether it has to do with handling conflicts <clears throat> at school, whether it has to do with bringing some peace of mind and having a more healthy attitude to life or a healthy you know, a habit. If we need to make a connection, direct connection, of the cultural values and the beliefs to those everyday reality and needs, then children will appreciate because they will see personal benefit. Because simply telling them this is part of our culture, you need to accept it and you need to believe in it, I don't think really works. And this is where His Holiness is really um, you know, insistent. And in fact, despite all of these busy issues and so many requests from many different parts of the world, including Tibetan communities and so on. You know, for many years, His Holiness has been giving teachings at Tibetan children's village in Dharamsala, specifically just to the you know the target audience being the students there. And I think that's what he wants to show that a real relevance of the Buddhist teachings and Tibetan cultural values in our everyday life. Thank you. Um, now. Uh... I see you relaxing, but I've been asked to squeeze, if I could squeeze in one more question sure, sure, for sure, you. Sure. <laughs> uh, so this question is from Ashwin. He says, um, how can one be kind and not be taken advantage of? How can we balance being kind and not being vulnerable? Being kind really has to uh, be rooted in some kind of... Uh, Wisdom. It has to be a wise kindness. And I think that kindness, if you can make it as a you know, default natural response, and which really re does require initially giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. So I think your your so what you're saying is if you embrace compassion as your fundamental value, it does require us that we do not rush to judgment. So we do not rush to bringing judgment and criticism at the, as an initial response and suspicion. So in our initial response has to come from connecting with the humanity of the other person and giving the other person benefit. But that does not mean that as a as a as a second step we cannot respond with firmness, because often there are situations where being kind in a continuous way when you are taken advantage of. Is actually detrimental to the person who's doing it, then out of compassion for this other person who is actually creating a bad dynamic and habit, you can be firm and tell that person off. So I, I don't think kindness and being firm are not contradictory because in the end, the genuine kindness has to come from a particular choice of taking a stand. And so I don't think there is a contradiction. 
that's it now. We have our time is up, then Jambala. We could go on. Um, well, actually, before I close, I just wanted to share some of my personal kind of, you know, very briefly. Um, immediately after the Nobel Award ceremony, on the day there was the official receiving of the ceremony, and the day after there was the Nobel lecture when I had a uh, chance to stand next to his holiness and translate for him. And then uh, we were there for a day or two. And then on that trip, his holiness really made an effort to visit the northern part of Norway, because it turns out that he had always been interested in this intrigue in this kind of, you know, very short daylight zone. So we were in uh, Samiland. And uh, one of the most memorable experience I have is to watch his holiness ride on a reindeer <laughs> sleigh ride and it was really and it was just amazing it was beautiful because once we landed in Tromso we had this big bus so uh, the whole entourage and his holiness so we had Tintin Gejala and Prashwandula um, was there and maybe Gerulmache was also there and then the two attendants of his holiness and myself I was a monk then and um, one of the things that I remember vividly is because the Tibetan monastics don't cover our right arm. And uh, it was really cold when we landed in Tromso. That was the first time I've experienced minus 20 temperature. The first thing you notice is drying up your nose. <laughs> it's like, so um, it was really, you know, magical. And uh, one of the interesting things is that I was in my, you know, I was just 30 something, 31. So in the Tibetan tradition, the younger monks um, are always never supposed to wrap themselves mm -hmm. in front of a senior monk because it's seen as a mark of disrespect. So of course I was with his holiness and I keep my right arm bare in this <laughs> intensely cold country. And his always kept saying, wrap yourself up. <laughs> It was really, it was just, it was so beautiful. Um, I hope, uh, I, I think there are some uh, video images of There's that. A video of that. So um, I, I will take that video up and put it below the space yeah. uh, stream. Um, that would be really, yeah. Yes. Yeah. There is one, I remember one big talk his this gave in, uh -huh. um, you know, big place and it was a kind of a quiet cold. There was a wind coming and even his holiness was not only a rap, but he was putting his, over his head <laughs> to keep himself warm. Yes, uh, 31 years ago, so that his holiness would have been um, 54? Yeah, something Somewhere like that. 54. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. We well, have to have you back again. We have lots to talk about. I wanted to also share with our uh, viewers Thubdhan um, Jamala's uh, book, uh, A Fearless Heart. And also, since it's uh, Tsongkhapa Day today, his uh, autobiography of uh, Tsongkhapa is here. So thank you, Tutan Jambala, for all your scholarship, for all your work, you know, sharing His Holiness's uh, message with us today. Thank you. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank Always Look at International Campaign for Tibet as our premier advocacy organization um, with the offices both in Europe and in North America, as well as in India. Um, and, um, you know, those of who like yourself, you have really dedicated your life for this advocacy. And, um, and as His Holiness often reminds us, it's not a simply, uh, our struggle is not simply a struggle of uh, a nation and people, but it's also a struggle um, for the protection and survival of uh, one of the world's most important culture and civilization as well. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you and your colleagues. Thank you, Tutin Jumlat. And all the supporters of Yes. With, without our supporters, we wouldn't be here. So exactly. Well, that's, we have to thank them. That brings us to the end of our program today. Um, our shows are also available uh, on podcast uh, via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and um, you can learn more at safetibet.org slash pod. Well, we thank you for your interest and continued support for Tibet. And we look forward to see you at another episode of Tibet Talks. You can sign up for Tibet updates on safetibet.org. 
and get alerts on upcoming programs and news on Tibet. With that, wish you happy holidays. And if I don't see you again, a wonderful new year ahead. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.